Good morning, everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. If I didn't get to wish you, maybe you were out this past week, but Merry Christmas. I hope it was a good one. We had a wonderful Christmas at our house. Um, got to be with some friends and then also got some time just by ourselves. A little quiet. A little quiet's good on Christmas Day. And I'll tell you what, I got the perfect package of gifts this year. It just seemed that way to me. Just, I don't know, my wife picked out, it took seven years, but she finally got the right stuff. No, I'm kidding. But she um, she really did good. And I, one of my gifts I'm going to bring on Tuesday. It's a, good, it's a game. I got a new game. It's really fun. So, anyway, we had a wonderful Christmas. I hope you did, too. Um, of course, the greatest gift we talked about on Christmas Eve, God became a man. And we reflected on that a little bit. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to do this morning. I have double duty today. Did you know that? I have double duty. Because I both have to close out 2019 and at the same time open the door to 2020. So i got a big task in front of me today. But you know, are you ready to do it? All right, let's do it. All right, so I'm in the book of Hebrews this morning. Book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, would you stand with me as we read beginning with verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. The author here writes, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. You can have a seat. Perspective is a beautiful thing. Of course, you can ask any photographer and they would agree with that statement. It's also true as you come to the Word of God. Perspective, it's a beautiful thing. Especially as you come to these key and core doctrines of the Bible, like the fact that God became a man. And you see that the writers of Scripture approach these doctrines with a different purpose in mind and their own style of writing, but They approach it differently, so we are left with a fuller and richer impression of what it is teaching us, what we are learning from it. So sometimes that means that what they give us is sort of the the wide-angle lens, right? Kind of like we looked at last Sunday. You remember we saw all the way back from Daniel and what he prophesied five, six hundred years later to the announcement of the birth of Christ. And in a way, we looked over the whole field, right, of that prophetic word going up, being proclaimed out, 
until it was finally caught by one who was a worthy son of man. We watched, right, as that worthy receiver was miraculously brought forth, being born of a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, this child, it said, would be holy, right? He'd be at the same time David's royal seed, but also the Son of God. So the word that was announced to Mary was that her son would reign forever on the throne of David. That was the the wide-angle view, right? But other times, the view that we need is a bit of a closer one, a little more zoomed in. Okay, It's one thing to look at the panoramic view of the stars and the, the planets, but it's quite another thing to focus your attention in on one and just look at its individual glory. And really, this is what Hebrews does for us and with regard to Jesus' incarnation. Right? Mainly, he says, do you know why this was so necessary. Okay. Or if I could put it this way, why did the eternal son who has existed forever take on flesh and blood? So, with the lens of Hebrews on in place, I just want to point out four simple things this morning from this text that we looked at, okay? Four things that we see here. And the first one is this. Number 1. See what God is doing. Okay, so just take a look at it, right? See what God is doing. The author first wants us to see that God the Father has set about to accomplish this purpose. Notice verse 10, right? For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, now look at this, in bringing many sons to glory. Right. In bringing many sons to glory. I pause there, right? That little adjectival phrase, Here's what God's after. He's bringing many sons to glory. Okay? And you say, well, what kind of glory is he talking about? Well, there's no need to speculate or to wonder because what he's alluding to is a reference he just made back in verses 6 to 8. So back up there a minute. Up there he said, it has been testified somewhere, and he quotes the Old Testament. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That comes from the Psalm chapter 8. And what's being described in Psalm chapter 8, what you're reading there, is mankind as they ought to be. Say, what do you mean? Say, what God made people to be. So it doesn't describe what's actual, but what is ideal. Men and women in the glory for which God created them. This is the way it was supposed to be, right? Crowned with glory and honor, everything in subjection to them, right? But this picture of man was never realized since the first man, Adam, right, sinned and therefore failed to receive that glory and honor. Instead, the authority and that dominion, what could have been, was usurped, it was snatched away, By a serpent, you know the story, who was Satan. So in the world until now has been subjugated to Satan's tyranny. But look at this. God is now bringing, then, he's bringing many sons to glory. In other words, he is restoring his children to that lost glory. Remember, as Paul has written, remember this passage? In 2 Corinthians, he said, 
as we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What image is that? Well, we just said it, the glory of the Lord. That's the image that you're being transformed into from one degree of glory to another. I love that word restoration. It's a great word. Think of a house, right? A house restored. It wasn't new, right? But it's been made new, right? And we stand back and go, is this the same house that I knew before? Look at what it used to be. And look at what it is now. But it's even better when you apply that word to people, right? Here's a man restored. Here's a woman restored. They were broken. They were lost. They were alone. All the residual aftermath of sin. Because sin is the opposite. It's corruptive, right? It is life withering. It is life shortening. So it has the opposite effect. And by the way, this is not just people in jail or in rehab. It's those with good jobs. It's those with big families. You realize that corruption can happen quickly and it can happen slowly. But you'll note this, that the end is the same. Corruption leads to destruction, to death, or what the Bible calls a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But God is restoring corrupted people. Not good already got it together people, corrupted people. And he's doing it from one degree of restoration to another, right? Now bear that in mind. God does not restore us completely, wholly, fully in this life. But know that God has declared it and made it possible. So it's, think of it this way, like when a new law goes into effect, right? State of Minnesota passed a law that no texting while driving, right? Now, the moment that law was passed, it was official. So to do that means you you broke the law. But the effect of that law has a gradual spread in society as people are made aware of it and as people are made compliant to it. They suffer the consequences of not following it. Likewise, listen, God has declared those who trust in Christ righteous. You're righteous. You say, I don't feel righteous. You're right. Because that decree is going to slowly take root gradually in your life. As you become aware and as you become compliant. The question then is, well, how do I know if I'm in a position that I can and will experience the restorative work of God? That's a good question. Okay, We're getting there. But first you need to know how it could happen at all. How could it even happen in the first place that God could restore you? Well, the phrase in bringing many sons to glory, it's part of a larger thought, isn't it? Look at that again. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, and here it is, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the subject's God, that's He, God the Father, and the main thought is this. It was fitting that He should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God's bringing many sons to glory. He's working a mighty salvation. And now, okay, you see what what God is doing, but now see how God is doing it. 
Here's how God set out to accomplish your salvation. He made the founder of it perfect through suffering. Now, what does that mean? That God had to make him perfect. You say, I thought Jesus was perfect. Does it mean that Jesus was somehow imperfect and that Jesus was a sinner? You could be led to think that, right? Just by reading it on face value. But no, we know Jesus was not a sinner like us. And actually, that's certain. We don't have to assume that because it's stated in the same book. If you look to chapter 4, verse 15, just look there for a minute. He says, for we do not have a high priest, he's talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, here it is, yet without sin. So, Jesus did not move from being sinful to sinless. That's not what the writer's talking about. So, well, what kind of movement was this then? Look at another passage here. Same book, right? Flip a page over to chapter 5, verse 8. Here it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So although he was a son, although he was the son of God, the verse says he had to learn obedience through suffering. And in this way, he's made perfect. So that's the same idea again, right? Same wording. He's made perfect. It's not a reference to sinlessness. Jesus was already without sin. The phrase means this. It means to be made adequate or complete. So in order to be the savior for Adam's race, Jesus had to undergo the same tests of obedience and, and succeed where the first Adam and all others have failed. In other words, he needed to have a proven righteousness. So the path of Jesus was one of moving from untested obedience to tested obedience, tested and proven obedience. And his sufferings, well, those were the testing grounds. It was through the suffering that it was proven. So the goal, what was the goal of it? Was the goal of his enduring these things and still choosing to be obedient was not simply for his own perfection, but for this reason, so that he could then offer himself for our salvation, our perfect salvation. The question is, did Jesus succeed? Well, yeah. Yeah, he did. Because verse 9 says, And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Under the Old Covenant, the high priest had to first offer a sacrifice, right? For himself and for the sins of everybody else. And they had to do it daily. Well, you come here and you realize that Jesus was both the priest who offered the sacrifice, and listen, for your sins, and He was the sacrifice Himself. What did He offer? He offered himself, right? And the offering was perfect. It was adequate. And therefore, it never had to be repeated again. So the way God is bringing many sons to glory is through the offering of his son, who was made adequate by proven obedience. And for that reason, in chapter 2, verse 10, he is called the founder of our salvation. 
That's a neat word. The word founder means one who begins or one who originates. It's used of those who cut a path forward for their followers. So you could say this, Jesus was the captain. He's the pioneer. He's the leader. He's the champion moving ahead before us. He's cutting away for those who come after him. The point is, Jesus championed our way to glory, back to glory. He pioneered the way for us. He's the forerunner. That's why the promise of Psalm 8 has already been fulfilled in him. He's been crowned with glory and honor. He's at the Father's right hand. So you can see now what God is doing. He's bringing many sons to glory. And how God is doing it through the perfected sacrifice of God the Son. But you also need to see why God so did it. You see, the author of the book has written that Jesus' Jesus' being perfected through suffering was fitting. Did you catch that word? For it was fitting. You think God could save us any way He wanted to, right? He's God. And yet it says that it was fitting, it made sense it, that it be done, the salvation of sinners be done in this way. And there's two explanations for why God saw fit to save sinners in the way that He did. Number one, it's necessary for our sakes. Verse 11, it explains this. It says, For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. And He goes on to give three quotes to black to back up that claim that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. So listen then. The one who sanctifies, who's that? Well, that's Jesus. He's the one who sanctifies you. Those sanctified are those who believe in obedience to him. Believers. Now, in that he has become a man, fully man, we now have a brother who is not estranged to us in any way. In other words... Both he and I are one. We are all of one, right? God is the father of him and the father of me. We have the same source. See, what, what exactly is God doing? Remember this. God is restoring us in true relationship to him, which is as his sons, as his daughters. He's bringing many sons to glory. He's calling together a spiritual family. But there would not be unity in this family if Jesus was not a true brother. There would not be sympathy in this family if Jesus did not suffer like we did. And so he became like us in every way. You've got to think about that. But secondly, it's not only for the family of God, but for the glory of God. Did you notice this? For it was fitting that he, and here's this next phrase, for whom and by whom all things exist. Why does anything exist? For the glory of God. What the author is not allowing us to lose sight of is the fact that God did this in order to bring the most glory to Himself. Because Christ submitted to God, even to death on the cross, He brought the most glory to God the Father. Did you notice what Jesus said in John 17? I glorified you on earth. And here's how. 
having accomplished the work you gave me to do. For your sake, and to give the glory to God. Now, all that we have labored to see today, seeing these three things, and there's one more, is situated in a word of exhortation. Remember, so what Daniel saw prophetically, and then last week what Luke announced angelically, the author of Hebrews here unpacks for us in a word of exhortation. And the reason he's working so hard to show us what God is doing and how God is doing it and why he did it is so that you don't neglect it. Okay, so number four then is you need to see then the greatness of salvation. Who came for you? Not an angel. God did. God came for you. And it wasn't just that he came, but that he became Right? Flesh and blood. This is the reason that God's salvation is available at all. Right? Because God became a man to achieve man's destiny for him. So that those who trust in him would share in that glory. And he will lead you to that glory. What that means for you and I today is this. If you and I desire to be in a position where we are continuously changed into his image, then you must heed this in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Can I put it this way? Don't neglect it. Don't be careless about it. Take it seriously. I want you to tie your will and your affections and your mind to the docks of salvation. That means you treasure it. That means you ponder it. You meditate on it. That means you come to the throne of grace for prayer and you meet regularly with other believers. Okay. So you take hold of this salvation and you run into 2020 and you don't let yourself drift. The comparison, by the way, from verses 2 to 3 is what we call the argument from the lesser to the greater. The lesser being the law. Look at this. For since the message declared by angels, he's talking about the law of Moses, proved to be reliable, okay, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Okay. If that happened under the law, then he says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? People love proclaiming that we're not under the law, but under grace. That the old covenant is obsolete, and that's true. And we rejoice in it. But know that with a greater covenant, there are more serious consequences for disregarding it. Grace does not mean I can afford to be careless. It means all the more I run with endurance, that I pray with fervor, that I step up to the service of God. And I get so acquainted with the saints that I know how to love them in the way they need to be loved. Now, the reason this church is still standing is not because of its walls or its foundation. The reason is because your spiritual ancestors moored their life to the greatness of what they received. This church. And I can prove it to you. You remember that? 
Now, before you try identifying who that is up there, is that any of you guys up there? <laughs> but think about who put those words up, plastered on these walls, right? How can you neglect so great a salvation? Did they value their salvation? Yeah, they did. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And so I hope that 30, 40, 50 years from now, someone looks back at a photo and thanks the Church of God today for loving their salvation. You got it? Let's pray. Lord, I think this is just a taste, just a sampling to see what this author has written for us in regards to the Son of Man and what He came to do, what God, what You planned to do for our sakes. And to think that we now have a Savior who, is a, who we call brother because He was made in every way like we are, so He relates to us with everything that we ourselves are going through. What can we say? But what a great salvation. And to think that all we must do is trust in you and that you will begin to restore us into that glory. And one day you'll complete the work you've started. Because, how do you know? How do I know God's going to do that? Because we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, but who is now crowned with glory and honor. Where is he? You're at the Father's right hand. That means one day I'll be there too. And I can't wait. And encourage us now, Lord, to dock ourselves on salvation, on this great truth, and to run into it, into the new year, with new fervor, with new passion. Oh God, to make decisions that would matter ten years from now, would matter into eternity. Help us to think about those things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.